If you're listening to this episode on November 4th, 2021, the day that this episode, you know, first hit the airwaves, then I want to wish you happy Genetic Counseling Awareness Day. I've been pretty open on this show about the fact that my day job is a genetic counselor. I've been a genetic counselor for a couple of years now. I work in a few different fields, and I have a lot of affection and deep admiration for the role we have as healthcare providers. If you don't know what a genetic counselor is, essentially we are healthcare professionals that help patients and providers navigate the crazy world of medical genetic testing. We work in all kinds of different fields from oncology to reproductive medicine to pediatrics to adult genetics. Basically every medical specialty, there's probably a role for genetics somewhere. We are over 5,000 strong in the United States and there are several more genetic counselors all over the world. And it's still an awareness day for us, not an appreciation day, because honestly, most of us don't really know what we do yet. But if you are someone who is intrigued by genetic counseling, either from a professional or a personal standpoint, please reach out to me. I am happy to answer questions about what I do for a living, anything to raise a little bit of awareness. Okay, that's it. Now time for the show. Malavika Prasid. I'm the host of Your Favorite Book, a podcast all about answering that big question, what's your favorite book and why? I have no real literary credentials. I just really love books and I love sitting down with writers and readers and talking all about the ins and outs of the best literature has to offer. And my guest this week is S.J. Sindhu, the author of new novel Blue Skinned Gods. Sindhu brings a wealth of information on everything from bespoke gift wrapping to uh, chapbook writing to accurately representing the LGBTQ spectrum in the lens of South Asian literature. Sindhu is an absolute delight, and I am so happy to have them on the show today. And we are talking about Exit West by Mohsen Hamid, which I am not kidding when I say this, might be one of the most beautiful books I have ever read. So hope you enjoy. I guess I want to start by asking you, you know, can you tell us, you know, that big question? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do? Sure. So I am a writer. I'm a novelist. I am a professor of creative writing. Um, so I, uh, I'm Thummel. I'm queer. And so I, I do a lot of uh, scholarship and writing and teaching around South Asian identity, uh, South Asian diaspora literature, and queer and trans and non-binary literature. Um, so I do a lot of stuff <laughs> around <laughs> around a lot of those identity markers. Um, and you know, I, I I also brew beer, and I um, I'm into bespoke gift wrapping, um, and you know, it's yeah, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm someone who gets really obsessed with things very easily wait time out what is bespoke gift wrapping what it, is it, this it, it's it's like uh like taking your gift wrapping to the next level so that there are no like you know it, it's it's classy it's like designed for the particular person in mind mm-hmm. you know it's uh, there's like all these like beautiful papers that are used and like you know real silk uh ribbons and like you know you just get into all the materials and the materiality of it 
So it's like the the wrapping itself is part of the gift. Absolutely. It's often better than the gift. That that's amazing. I'm thinking like I need to learn how to wrap like a regular present. Like I'm notorious <laughs> for like the newspaper or like shove it in a gift bag and just be like have at it. <laughs> but I I can appreciate the beauty of something like that. Um and I I love how you kind of have your hand in like all these different things that you do and uh, specifically with your writing, I mean, obviously we can see a lot of those intersections here in Blue Skinned Gods, you know, focusing on South Asian identity, focusing on, you know, LGBTQ narratives. They're all kind of coming together pretty seamlessly in this book. And so can you tell us a little bit about this book, you know, if you can give us a, a little summary? Yeah, of course. So uh, Blue Skinned Gods is about a young boy whose name is Kalki. And this is based on the South Asian mythology of Vishnu, where he takes avatars uh, as humans on Earth. And um, he has supposedly taken, you know, nine avatars and there's 10 in total. And so we, we are waiting for the last and final avatar of Vishnu. And um, this is about a little boy named Kalki, who is believed to be the last avatar of Vishnu. Um, so he is supposedly going to lead us, you know, see the end of this world and lead us into the next uh, epoch, mm-hmm. uh, the next era. And so he grows up believing he's living in an ashram in rural India, and he grows up believing that he is the Avatar Vishnu. He has blue skin, so mm-hmm. there's you know there's like some stuff to support his divinity. And uh, he, it's believed that he can heal people. So he spends most of his childhood sort of pursuing this as a goal to heal people around him. And uh, this is about his growth and his eventual loss of faith and his eventual questioning of his own divinity. I think that that covers it all so well. And I, I think one of the things that really stood out to me about this book, and it's a book I, I really enjoyed, I found the narrative very compelling. I was invested in Kalki. I was invested in his growth and his journey and how he grows from child to man. And like you said, questions his faith in divinity. Um, I think one of the things that this book does really, really well, it um, there's this acknowledgement of the trauma that Kalki faces, you know, uh, trauma from his upbringing, from his family members, as well as from society at large. And It's interesting thinking about trauma in South Asian literature, I think especially when it's viewed by a Western audience. I feel like there's this tendency to categorize trauma as, oh, this is a South Asian stereotype. But I actually thought this felt very universal to me. A lot of these, these, the pressures, the, the gaslighting, the emotional abuse, the physical abuse, these are things that people can relate to in a variety of contexts. And I guess I was wondering if, you know, some of that idea of trauma and South Asian culture, is that something that crossed your your mind at all when you were crafting this narrative? Absolutely. I, you know, I've always sort of resisted this idea that a South Asian narrative goes a particular way. And I think it's because, you know, I'm not Indian. I uh, did, you know, wasn't born in the States. I wasn't born outside. I was uh, born in Sri Lanka. I came here when I was seven. So I sort of have uh, a foot in both cultures. I'm fluent in Tamil. I'm still very close with my family. So like, there's, there's these warring parts of me that are very different than the warring parts of somebody who was born and raised in the West, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so there's that part. 
Um, and I, I also wanted to, you know, I've already done the, the sort of South Asian uh, diaspora outsider trying to reconcile heritage and newness book mm -hmm. with my first book. Um, so this, this was really about exploring religion. And I think because of that, that's why it's so, uh, it can be really universal and it can be more outward facing because to me, anyone who's grown up in a religious household can relate to Kalki, no matter if that household is Hindu or Buddhist or Christian or Muslim. Uh, it doesn't really matter at a certain point, you know, like anyone who's been told religion says this and so you must act this way mm -hmm. can relate to Kalki. That's a great way of putting it, you know, framing it in that context of religion rather than as culture, because you're right, a lot of the trauma, a lot of the conflict does stem with coming to terms with one's faith and, you know, separating who you are now with how you've been raised I, I think that framing makes a lot of sense. Um, another thing that just jumping topics a little bit, but another thing that your book does so well is there is this true diversity when it comes to sexuality and identity. So your book features uh, gay, lesbian, transgender characters, both in the West as well as in the East, which is great. It's not one exclusive to the other. Uh, we even see things like polyamory and other more unconventional quote unquote relationships um, and then do you feel that, I mean, it's hard to speak for a larger body uh, such as South Asian writers like this, but do you feel that we're making progress when it comes to representation and the right kinds of representation? Or is this something South Asian authors are, we're still trying to play catch up? I think, I think we're making a lot of progress. And I think um, whatever progress we're not making, I don't think it's because there's a lack of people writing about it. I think it's because the publishing industry really, mm -hmm. you know, is resistant. And, you know, I, I came across this when I was trying to sell my first novel where it was, you know, back in 2014, 2015, it was at a time when there weren't really a lot of South Asian queer novels out there. And the, the rejections I got from a lot of people, a lot of editors at, at big publishing houses was that, you know, like, this is, if it was one or the other, if it was South Asian or queer, we'd know how to sell it. But if it's both, we don't really know what to do with it. And so we don't want it. And, mm. and so that was a lot of what I was fighting against when I was trying to sell that novel. And so I was sort of, I mean, I was very horrified that that was the response because since then, and this is great, since then, I think, publishing houses and Hollywood studios have realized that it actually doubles your audience to have two different marginalized uh, yes. voices than to, you know, make it much smaller. So um, I think it's, it's gotten a lot better, but, um, but there's, there's definitely, you know, a struggle, I think, to uh, represent these because especially like post-colonial um, South Asian culture tends to be super conservative, and I and I I think it's because of the British. I think it's because they sort of imported their uh, Victorian, like Elizabethan and Victorian ideals to South Asia, and, mm -hmm. and sort of imposed it on everybody. And now we have fed into and and swallowed wholesale this idea that this is part of our culture, and it's not. Mm -hmm. um, so. For me, a lot of what 
I want to do is to unearth that, to unearth the the, the ways in which subversion and rebellion uh, occur within South Asian culture um, that, that has nothing to do with the British. I, I, I love that because, first of all, you're absolutely right. It's not that there are South Asian writers that are not putting out content that is making strides and progressing. It is, you know, what is the larger audience looking for? And you're right. I'm thinking from 2014 to now, you know, just a few years later, there has been a tremendous amount of change. And, you know, that is exciting to see. Um, and, you know, we're, we're seeing not only in literature, but in broader media as well, just this diversity of experience and bringing together multiple marginalized identities. And I, I mean, the more specific I feel a narrative is, people think it's limiting, but I think it's just another way of consuming a story. And those are the stories we need to see. Um, so I, re I really love that. Um, and, oh gosh, I'm losing my train of thought today. <laughs> But you said so much that I, I really, really like here. And I, I think the things I love most is that these characters are just sort of woven into your plot. They, they, are, they exist to exist. They're, they're not made a spectacle of. I mean, obviously, there are conflicts that come with relationships with certain characters, but they, they have their lives and their sexuality doesn't exist to further the story for a lot of these characters. And that's something I, I really appreciated. And that's the kind of representation I hope we see more of. Yeah, me too. I, um, you know, I already wrote the queer South Asian book in my <laughs> first novel. So I was really I, like, I wanted to do the opposite and write a novel in which the character is queer. And um, for me, he's non-binary. And, mm -hmm. uh, but like, that's not part of the, the big plot. That's not part of what right. I'm struggling with. He's He's just also happens to be queer and non-binary. And like that isn't really part of the main plot of the story. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we need, I think we need both kinds of narratives. I don't think it's one or the other. I, I think we need both. And yeah. at this point, there's a lot of uh, novels that, and, and, and other kinds of stories that focus on being queer. So I think it's about time we get some protagonists who just happen to be queer, but have other problems. <laughs> Uh, and then sort of moving away from Blue Skin Gods, but another thing I was just very curious about it as I was reading up on you and your work you have coming out, you have a lot of stuff coming out, you know, <laughs> in the future. And I'm so impressed by that. And one of the things that struck me is you have a chat book coming out and the title of your chat book, um, Dominant Genes, I'm correct, right? Yes. Yep. So that struck me because I'm, I'm, I've said this before on the show, I'm a genetic counselor. So whenever I hear dominant genes. I was like, ooh, but obviously it wasn't full on genetics here, but the, the premise of your chapbook is so interesting. And I guess my my first question is for a literary dummy like me, can you describe, you know, what a chapbook is, you know, how it differs from maybe a conventional book or novel and what appealed to you about the form? Sure. So a chapbook is just a really small book. Um, it's probably about a third or a fourth the size of a regular book, a full-length collection would be. Um, you know, they, in the past, chapbooks were often printed by hands on letterpress and, like, you know, people would sell them, you know, hand sell them. Um, in today's world, that's not quite the case, and they do tend <laughs> to be, you know, perfect bound and beautifully produced and, and not handmade. But um, they're still handmade chapbooks, but most mm -hmm. chapbooks are not. So mine is a hybrid uh, poetry and flash nonfiction essay chapbook. 
um, which is really trying to deal with issues of heritage, issues of gender um, and gendered heritage. Uh, and and this idea that um, so I'm from Sri Lanka and I'm Tamil and uh, my mom's family is from Jaffna and there is this weird trope <laughs> in uh, Tamil like fiction and Tamil movies that and and just the Tamil imagination that like women from Jaffna are uncontrollable that they mm. you know that they cannot be um, controlled by a husband that they you know if you marry a girl from Jaffna you she will wear the pants in the family so I think this is really fascinating um and it's it's an interesting heritage to have and (laughs) it's a very feminist heritage and it's a very matriarchal heritage and in a lot of ways my family functions matriarchally um which I think Mm -hmm. is really cool but also goes against what they actually say out loud um, yeah. Like in reality, my family is super matriarchal, but when they actually talk about themselves, especially the older generation, they will definitely like make sure to use like patriarchal norms to talk about themselves, which mm-hmm. I think is very interesting. So that's what my my chapbook is trying to explore. Um, but also, you know, I, I do come from a STEM background. My my both my parents are immunologists, and so I grew up around like biotech and molecular biology and this was like dinner table talk for a long time (laughs) so you know (laughs) it's not it's not quite as far from uh your interpretation your initial reaction as as (laughs) as one might think I I I I wasn't aware of the the particular trope but um I'm from my family's from Kerala and we grew up with this idea that we come from a matriarchal mm-hmm. background and it's something I was always proud of but you're you're right you know if you see it on sort of an individual lens and sometimes how people describe their relationships or talk about each other there's still this patriarchal bent in how we describe ourselves and especially in the older generations like you're mentioning and so there is that cognitive dissonance a little bit and it so seems like a very fascinating project how is poetry as a form for you versus fiction does one come more naturally than the other I used to write a lot of poems before I uh you know got really serious about uh my fiction um so like prior to probably my first uh university class in creative writing I was writing a lot of poems they were terrible terrible poems holy I, like, I I just I was gonna say holy shit like I I just can't <laughs> when I read them now I'm like oh my god I'm so bad but I was really into it and I really loved it um and I ended up marrying a poet and mm. so for a long time I didn't write poetry because I was like okay I've I've committed to fiction I'm gonna just do fiction I'm bad at poetry and then very recently during the pandemic I was like, all right, we have nothing else to do. We're stuck in the house with each other. And so I was like, all right, why don't you run like a master class for me in poetry and I will learn poetry. Um, and so I, my partner designed this class for me and I took it <laughs> over the first summer of COVID. And I started writing these poems um, and it was incredibly freeing. Uh, because prose is so such a meticulous process, especially when you're writing novels or you're, when you're writing long form prose, which is mostly what I write. 
you know, I have like a handful of short stories and that's it, right? Like I have, I write long form and it's so meticulous. You have to keep track of so many things. You have to get past a lot of really boring things and you have to try to figure out how to make them interesting. And uh, you have to connect all the dots. Whereas in poetry, you just sort of leap from one image to another. You, you, you sort of leave the gaps there. Um, and that was really freeing to me. I loved that about poetry. So I'm, I'm hoping to, to eventually write a full-length poetry collection. I have about probably a third of it already um and i'm i'm working i'm working steadily toward uh toward a full length i I, so i'm just thinking like you were bored in quarantine and instead of i don't know baking banana bread or like playing animal crossing you were like i'm going to learn poetry from (laughs) my poet partner and i i really admire that i i feel like we were all you know cooped up together might as well learn from our significant others you know and I, as someone who also wrote terrible poetry when I was a young person, I'm like, maybe I should give that another try again. Like I'd always just written myself off as bad at poetry. And maybe it's just an art we haven't practiced as much as we've practiced other arts. Yeah. I mean, I think poetry, my poetry was so much better when I returned to it as an adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think just because like I was, I was over the, the things I thought that poetry needed to be. Mm. which is something I observe in my students. So I teach mostly, you know, like 18 to 22 year old students Mm -hmm. and they all have, they all come in to creative writing with ideas of what a poem needs to be. Whereas they don't have that kind of hang up about fiction. Mm. They're just like, fiction could be anything. And then like, but poetry must rhyme. It must be centered. It must do this. It must do that. And like they have these very strong ideas of what it means to write poetry, which is, I think, a testament to how badly poetry is taught. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel like we don't learn very much poetry in like, you know, high school or middle school. Like maybe we just get a handful of Shakespearean sonnets or like a couple things here and there, but we're not really studying modern poetry. I mean, we don't even study a lot of modern prose, but far less modern poetry. Right. Anything past like 1850, I don't think we really study uh, in terms of poetry. And at least we study a little bit of actual modernist prose, right? Like most people have read a little bit of Virginia Woolf and, uh, you know, Gene Tumor and and people that are in the 20th century. (laughs) Yes. At least somewhat within our realm. Right. Oh, gosh. I could talk about this for a while, but uh, I want to move on to talking a little bit about the book you chose for this episode, and that is Exit West by Mohsen Hamid. And oh, my gosh, I was so overdue reading this, and I am so happy I did because this book had been on my radar for a bit. But when I was when The Reluctant Fundamentalist came out, I read that and I wasn't a huge fan of it, but I was also like 17 years old. Mm-hmm. So that might have been why. But this book had sort of been on my radar and I had heard so many people say wonderful things and I'm like, okay, here's my chance. And I read it and this book is a work of art, everybody. This book is beautiful. It stands apart from so many others that I've read. Uh, before we jump into the nitty gritty, I'm going to give everyone a, a brief summary. So um, in Exit West, uh, we explore the motivations and movements of migrants, specifically Syed and Nadia, a young couple from an unspecified nation. Uh, The two of them fall in love as their city crumbles from war, and they take a risk and step through a mysterious door, which claims to take them to another place. 
their adventures and their struggles to move, assimilate, and live comprise the rest of the book. And so it's a very shoddily written summary for a lovely book. But uh, Sindhu, I, I'd love to hear from you. Can you tell me about when you first picked up this book and what struck you about it? Yeah, I, I first read it, I think, the year that it came out because I um, I was teaching a class called Contemporary Writers of Color. And I so I took it upon myself to to read everything that was uh, you know, really being talked about. So um, everything that had hype that year. Uh, so a lot of it, a lot of my reading list was was uh, novels by writers of color that had been National Book Award finalists or Booker Prize finalists. Mm-hmm. And um, this was one of those novels. And I was impressed by all of them. But this one really just blew me away, mostly because I mean, it's 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 very well laid out to look like a book. But it is very short. So like if you laid it out the way you lay out a traditional novel, it would be half the size. I'm betting, I I am willing to bet quite a sum of money that it is 40,000 pages, like 40,000 words or less, whereas most novels are 80, right? Yeah, I believe you. I believe you because I listened to this on audiobook and the audiobook was under five hours. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and it moves so fast and it but it covers so much. There's yes. so much that happens. And uh you know, the idea of the doors might not be as original as, you know, uh we would want to hope. Um, mostly because, you know, Pixar and monsters inc <laughs> like oh doors yes they 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 are uh they form a pathway across space um maybe across time we don't know uh, but but like the way that it handles both the relationship between nadia and saeed and the war and all of the sort of global catastrophes happening and the experience of migration all at once, mm-hmm. all in this small, like forty or fifty thousand words, it was beautiful. It, it is, it is a, a masterpiece, I think. Um, and there's so much to be learned from it as a writer. Like, yes. if you if you're interested in how to plot a novel, like this is it. Yes, I'm glad you you pointed out the plotting here because you're right. In this short, short book, like this covers so much and you're right not only the rise and sort of the ups and downs of a relationship um, of these two characters as individuals as well because we get a lot of that but also just a broader experience of movement of migration of what it means to be accepted or not accepted in a place to see your homeland torn apart by war like there, there is so much going on in this book and it is stunning what this book is able to do. Uh, and the, the pace that it moves at, like you said, if you're trying to plot out a novel, this book moves at a, a wonderful pace where you, you kind of forget how long this is. Like mm-hmm. you're just sort of taken, you could read this in one sitting and just be taken on a journey. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah, I, I also think that, you know, I often get asked this question of like, is it possible for people to write outside of their own lived experience or their own identities? And I think this book is a great example of uh, a man writing a female character who is yes. really believable, beautifully written, like very complicated, 
not at all uh, conforming to any sort of tropes. Um, and also like, a, you know, a straight person writing queer characters or, you know, like there, there's just mm-hmm. a lot here that's being done. And then of course, like outside of Saida Nadia, there's all, all these other characters who are sort yep. of floating around who are also being written really well. So um, it, especially when you're talking about on a craft level, how do you write outside of your demographic? I think this is a great example. Right. I think this one, if you're asking the question, how to write outside your demographic, it's with care and with respect. Mm -hmm. And I really feel that that's how Nadia especially was treated, you know, Uh, as a female character, as a single woman, a a fiercely independent woman, um, how her she it's easy to write an independent woman as this hard edged, you know, Mm -hmm. hard to love, hard to get to know character, but she's tremendously tender and very lovable, but also just knows what she wants in many ways in life. And it was just wonderful to see those things come together in one character, especially written by a man. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated that aspect of her character. And I think the other thing that just on a prose level, like this book, you can flip through any of these pages and just find beautiful sentences. Yes. And it's it's amazing, just beautiful sentences. Yeah, the the language, the the attention to language that's that's there is, and and I think that's part of the reason why it's short, or the attention to language is a result of it being so short. Is that yeah, there could you know every sentence can be beautiful, whereas in like a hundred thousand word novel, it's hard to make every sentence be beautiful. I also think that when you have a specific, and he has a very distinct style, you know, this book is known for commas and long sentences and clauses, and you can get lost in them. It's beautiful on audiobook. I highly recommend the audiobook. He reads it himself. And I think that in order for that style to perpetuate and not get old, you need to limit your, your, your book. And I feel like this book did not overstay its welcome because I feel like with something so deeply stylistic like this, it it could get tiring. I often say, you know, someone once asked me, do you like Hemingway? And I say, I like Hemingway's short stories because in novel forms, his style tires me out. Like I can't read it in a longer form, but I like his style in a short story or in a shorter piece. And I'm not saying that this would be similar. I feel like I could read this for much longer, but... style can sometimes overtake substance, but this was just beautifully balanced. Yeah, I agree. I agree totally. And so we mentioned uh, Nadia and I I think the two of them, I I think what struck me about their relationship is that they're, like we said, we see them together, but we also see them separately. The point of view does shift quite a bit and we do get in their heads. And I feel like interiority is like that buzzword that we teach a lot and we, we teach it in our creative writing classes. And, you know, it's this idea that we're getting this insight into the characters, thoughts and feelings and inner life. But there is, this is a masterclass in interiority too, just the level of insight we're able to get and how they're processing relationships, how they process things that are missed. Like, are we holding hands right now? Can we feel each other's presence? It's something you can just really take note of and take your time with. Yeah. That's, uh, I, I think one reason why I really appreciate this book is because I do struggle with interiority. It doesn't come naturally to me. Um, it's, it's not something I immediately think about mm. with a character. I, I always try to, 
uh, render their interiority through their actions or through their dialogue. And I never really engaged too deeply with their actual thoughts. Um, so this was a great example of how to do that and how to do it really well yes. um, in in not that many words. So, the, you know, you don't have to two pages of thoughts in one character's mind we it's very succinct and it's very judiciously done the other thing that struck me about this book and you know when i was as i do whenever i read something i have to sit and read reviews of it and argue with them mentally um some people were pointing out you know the idea of the doors and the magical realism elements of this um sort of saying you know does it detract from the overall narrative does it distract could you write this book without them? You could, but I think that the doors for me, it didn't detract from how real this book felt. I mean, this book does not shy away from descriptions of, of war and of racism and prejudice. Like all those are still at the forefront. I really feel like it is possible to write magical elements that don't sugarcoat. And this book did that really well. But I know for other readers, the doors seemed, you know, as you mentioned before, it's not the most original concept, but I don't know if you found them distracting or unnecessary to the plot. No, I found them actually extremely necessary to the plot mm-hmm. because without the doors, right, then you have a conventional migration narrative. And the thing with migration narratives is that in our modern contemporary world, most places that are quote unquote safe to live in, mm-hmm. right? That are that have stable political environments that have that that uh, at least the governments at for a certain you know level uh, prioritize human rights and human um, needs, mm-hmm. and uh, you have governments that provide basic needs for its citizens. So if in that scenario, almost all of those governments have extremely strict immigration policies mm. because otherwise everyone would come in, yeah. right? And so uh, whenever there's mass migration, it is limited, extremely limited often, by uh, immigration policies yeah. that exist in the countries where immigrants usually want to go. So the doors are the only way in my opinion, of breaking that down. Yes. It like gets rid of bureaucracy. It gets rid of the immigration process and it just allows people to show up somewhere, um, which wouldn't exist otherwise. You cannot have the story, which is basically a story of questioning what immigration actually means and what migration means and what it is to be part of a country or a citizen of a country mm-hmm. and should we put actual, you know, uh, uh, boundaries around citizenship and who belongs where. Um, you can't have that story without the doors yeah. <laughs> because otherwise, like, you know, Said and, and Nadia would, would just spend three years trying to process paperwork. Yeah. Who wants to read that? Honestly, it's, It distracts, I mean, for one thing, it's gritty realism, but it would distract from the much more interesting things that are being done in this narrative, such as telling this very mature relationship story or depicting the wars or depicting grief and loss and things that are much more compelling to read about. And it's like, there are wonderful accounts of real immigration, nonfiction and fiction alike, but this book didn't need that 
to heighten its potency. And if, if anything, I feel like the doors were sort of shedding some of those conventions and doing something a little bit newer and bringing that fantastical element to a very real concern for millions and millions of people. I, I, I can't sing enough praises for this book. I, I absolutely loved it. I urge a lot of you to pick this one up if you haven't. Judging from the number of my friends who have recommended this book to me, I think I was very late to the party here. But if you haven't heard, read this book, definitely pick this one up. Uh, and Sindhu, thank you for being the push I needed to read this. <laughs> yeah, I, I think everyone should read it. I think it, it and, and just to talk, you know, to talk briefly about the immigration process, I think uh, The Boat People by Sharon Bala is a really good um, example of how you can document mm. immigration and, and the bureaucracy that surrounds it really, really well. Um, but I don't think that was in the scope of, you know, Exit West. I think Exit West wanted to deal with other questions and the doors were a way of getting past uh, the bureaucracy. That actually lends right nicely to uh, the last part of this, which is talking about recommendations for other books. And the thing that came to mind to me was, okay, do I know of a straightforward immigration narrative or, or book that really provides sort of a counterpart to this? And the book that came to mind for me is a book called um, This Land is Our Land by Suketu Mehta. Um, and so this is a nonfiction book, and it's essentially an argument for immigration, uh, for immigration and talking about, you know, the various forms of immigration, what is going to drive immigration in the future, you know, things like our climate crisis, lack of resources, you know, changing uh, aging and dying populations. There's a lot of different factors that are going into this, as well as bringing in very personal stories of migrants and their attempts to cross borders and make new lives for themselves and thrive. It's a really wonderful mix of research and narrative. Another great audiobook. I'm someone who likes nonfiction on audiobook, keeps me engaged. But I think that's a really great counterpart to a book like this and provides some of that real context against this fictional narrative. So that's the book that comes to mind for me as a recommendation. Sindhu, I'm wondering if you've got some recommendations. Yeah, I mean, uh, I definitely would recommend The Boat People yep. uh, by Sharon Bala. Um, but there's, you know, there's a lot of other uh, really good books out there. It's really hard to do recommendations because I'm like, ah, there's so many. <laughs> um but right now I'm reading Stone Fruit by Lee Lai, which mm. is a uh, it's a graphic novel, um, but it is really beautiful and it it deals a lot with uh, queerness and with um, sort of Asian American identity. Uh, so I, I would definitely recommend that. Um, I would also recommend. Um, Freshwater by Akweke Amezi. Yes. Um, basically anything Akweke Amezi has written is, is highly <laughs> recommended in my opinion. Um, but Freshwater really blew me away with um, just the beauty of language. We were talking about attention to language earlier and Freshwater has this like sort of beauty poetic lilt to it, really poetic cadence. And I love it. It's so good. It's so good. I, I need to pick up uh, Freshwater. I, they have been on my radar for so long, all of their books, and I've heard nothing but wonderful things, and I need to push them up the list and read them. 
Um, you mentioned a graphic novel focusing on queerness and Asian American identity. Have you read The Magic Fish by Trung Le Win? I haven't. I think it's on my list. I think you'd like that. That was a really heartwarming story. The illustrations were beautiful. The storytelling was just very nuanced and very tender and draws upon a lot of those themes. And so a little unrelated to Exit West, but along with what we were talking about, I think that's a that's a great book to pick up. Awesome. I will definitely check it out. And then Sindhu, before we close out today, can you tell us about where we can find you and your work? Sure. Uh, so you can find me and my, uh, I guess, pre-order links and, and buy links at uh, sjcindu.com. And I'm SJCindu on pretty much all the social medias. So uh, you can find me there. And I'll definitely have links to everything in the show notes, as well as links to buy Sindhu's novel, which Blue Skin Gods definitely recommend picking this up. You know, once this episode's out in the world, so will the book. And so I definitely urge you to pick this up. And you have to look at the absolutely beautiful cover. We were talking about this before the episode started. Like, if nothing else we've said convinces you to read this, just look at that cover and buy the book. And so, Sindhu, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you and best of luck with the book. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of Your Favorite Book. If you like the episode, then please let us know about it. We're on Instagram and Twitter at YFB Podcast. Also, please consider writing us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice. Seriously, the reviews really do help. And as always, just keep an eye out for our episodes. We're out every other Thursday. And stay tuned for the end of the year coming up because we've got some special episodes coming your way. Till then, stay safe and happy reading. Mm -hmm.